The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. All right, we're, we're going to try and tackle the most difficult passage in the Bible this morning. 1 Peter 3, 18-22. Let's hear what God has to say to us this morning. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So far, so good, right? In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Father, we would ask now for your help. Very difficult text to understand, to interpret, to apply. We pray that we would understand. Uh, you give illumination from your spirit to this difficult text, but also we pray that it would win our hearts and we'd see how great, how beautiful, how good and true you are. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, Let's just jump in, and I'm not going to go through all the different views. I think, um, you know, I've heard there's, there can be 180 different exegetical combinations in theory, but there's mainly three theories or interpretations of this passage, and one is that Jesus is preaching through Noah, and this is pre-existent Jesus preaching in the times of Noah, and then is he preaching to angels, or is he preaching to... Um, people that either have repented or don't repent, is that what it's referring to? Or is it referring to Jesus somehow between his death and his resurrection, descending into hell and preaching the gospel in hell, either to those that are in hell or to angels? Or lastly, that this is between Jesus's resurrection and his ascension, and that he's passing through the spirit world, declaring victory as he uh, passes through, um, that's more, that's where I'm going to land. So just by way of reminders, Martin Luther says, this is a strange text and certainly a most obscure, more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament. I still don't know for sure what the apostle meant. That's good footing to start with from Martin Luther. And then Karen Jobes in her excellent commentary on 1 Peter said, this intriguing passage is fraught with problems that obscure its interpretation. Text-critical problems, grammatical ambiguities, lexical uncertainties, theological issues, as well as the question as to what literary and theological background the author is assuming. And then another commentator said about verse 19 that each of the nine words in the original language has been differently understood. So we're going to do our best with our time, okay? And hopefully you'll get something and you won't check out and fall asleep or 
uh, hopefully we'll see some importance to it. But I want to just try and answer some of the big questions, like the who, the when, the how, the what, the where, like scientific method, right? So the who, I mean, we get the first part, that Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And the idea is that it's clear that he stood in our place. And the idea that it says he suffered, some translations or manuscripts will say died, but certainly both are true. He suffered, and as a result of his suffering, he died in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous. And there you have a henna clause, which we make a big deal about. In order that, why did he do that? To bring you to God. And this idea of bringing you to God is is a very uh, personal, the idea is that he is ushering you into the very face and presence of God and by paying for your sins. And how did he do that? Well, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And so um, this is what Christ has done. Um, So we see his crucifixion. We see the resurrection in verse 18. And so verses 19 to 21, if you just kind of put those in parentheses for a minute, because that's where all the craziness gets difficult. But then if you just jump to 22, you go straight from the resurrection to the, asc- to the ascension. He's already raised at the end of verse 18. He was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, so he's already alive. So any views that he went down into hell between his death and resurrection don't make any exegetical sense because he's already been raised at the end of verse 18, and he appeals to the resurrection at the end of verse 21. And in verse 22, he's gone into heaven, and the same word gone is the word, or, or went, he's gone into heaven is the same word that's used in verse 19, in which he went. Same verb, same exact word. So one isn't he went up, and one isn't he went down. Both of them are he traveled. He traveled. Between the resurrection, he's been made alive in the spirit, and now in 22, he's gone into heaven. So something happens between the resurrection and the ascension. That's what we're trying to figure out, okay? And who, just kind of, you know, going through the questions of who is Jesus preaching to? Because it says he went and he preached, proclaimed, Russo is the Greek word, he's preaching to the spirits in prison. So is he preaching to humans? or to some supernatural beings, to demons. And I would argue with you that the scripture would support that this is demons and not to human beings. And anytime the word spirits in the plural, okay, it's the word pneuma in Greek, anytime it's in the plural and it's unqualified, it always refers to demons in the Bible. I'll give you three examples. Matthew 8, 16 says that evening many were Many were brought to Jesus who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And then Matthew 12, 45, and Jesus talks about when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, pretty scary passage, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first, so it will be with this evil generation. So there you see spirits again is definitely referring to demons. And then a familiar passage in Luke 10 where it says, 
Jesus says, nevertheless, to the, after he'd sent out the 10 or the, the 70, uh, it's actually the 12, but, and it could be the 70, but they come back, they're all rejoicing and because of all the great things that are happening. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in this. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So when it's going really well in ministry or going really bad, rejoice that your names are written in heaven and not that the spirits, okay, demonic spirits are subject to you. So the 18 examples of spirits in the plural refer to demons in the New Testament. There is one reference, though, that spirits does refer to human beings, and that would be Hebrews 12, 23, which you're familiar with, where it talks about you haven't come to, to uh, Mount Sinai, you've come to Mount Zion, and we're given a description of Mount Zion, and, you, and it says you've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And so here we have a reference to spirits in the plural referring to humans. But note, if you use that text, you've defeated your argument because the very text there is the spirits of the righteous made perfect. They're in heaven. They're not in hell. <laughs> and they've been made perfect. They don't need any preaching of the gospel to them. And so the only reference to spirits in the New Testament referring to humans is a reference to saints in heaven, not human spirits in hell or in prison, and they're already made perfect, not needing a message of the gospel or some type of second chance. So the who is clear. Who did he preach to? Answer, demons. We, we with it? You've got to put the puzzle pieces together. It's not humans, and it's after the resurrection, before the ascension, he's preaching to demons. That's what we got so far. Now we got to answer the when question, which we already tried to answer. And I've already, you know, told you that the text doesn't say he was put to death in the flesh, but remained alive in the spirit. Is that what the text says in verse 18? The end of verse 18 says, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit and went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And so... If it doesn't say he remained alive in the spirit, if that were the case, then somehow Jesus was somehow preaching between his death and resurrection might fit. But Jesus is clearly resurrected by the end of verse 18. And so the context is Jesus is preaching between his resurrection and his ascension. So that's the when. Well, then you have the what. What was the message that's being preached? Is it a second chance offer to unbelievers? Is it a declaration of victory over demonic spirits? Those are really your main options. And we know from Scripture that in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, that Jesus tells us in Luke 16, you recall that the rich man is in hell. And he's crying out for Abraham to send Lazarus. To send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner received bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. There's no second chance. There's no such thing as a post-mortem conversion. There's no best two out of three. It, it is 
The Bible says it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So there's no purgatory, there's no limbo for humans here. This is just, um, we're, we're destined to die. And, and at that point, there's this great chasm, and none can cross over between the two. That's the clear. So the word preached in 319, as I mentioned, is keruso, the Greek word, and not euangelizo, or euangelizomai, the idea of the good news. The preaching, the keruso, is a proclamation, and it's certainly often, most of the time, tied with the good news of the gospel in the New Testament, but, but keruso can also mean an announcement, the announcement of a new king taking his throne, and news then travels to the rest of the countryside of the keruso, the preaching of a, the new king is, is now taking his throne. And I believe that's what's happening here as Jesus is pronouncing his victory. Jesus didn't evangelize or offer salvation to the demonic world because the Bible tells us clearly in Hebrews 2.16 that surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And uh, angels are described in Scripture actually as elect angels. And theologians recognize that those that fell from heaven, the fallen angels, they have no chance of being redeemed like humans do. But the angels who pass the test and are called elect angels, 1 Timothy 5.21, they have no chance of falling away. They're elect angels. So we see... We're kind of putting the puzzle pieces together. Then you have to ask the question, where? Where does Jesus go? Did Christ go down to hell? Did he descend? And we said the word went is the same word that's used in verse 22. And it's not described as a descent or an ascent. There's no biblical evidence, I would argue, that Christ descended into hell. Psalm 16 says about Christ, or David first says that you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or to Hades, the place of the dead, and the idea of being buried in the earth, but that's not a reference to hell, where there's active and ongoing punishment or retribution for sins. You will not abandon my soul to the place of the dead, is the idea of Psalm 16. And then Ephesians 4 says Christ ascended into the lower parts of the earth, but once again, this fits much better with with being buried than going to hell. And so you wonder, well, where where do we get this doctrine of descended into hell? And uh, that's declared in in the Apostles' Creed. It's something that was added. It was not in the original Apostles' Creed. It's added some centuries later. Um, And it isn't in the Nicene Creed. Um, Somebody figure out what that noise is. Is it coming from outside the sanctuary? I'm hearing a noise. I don't know if there's conversation, but whoever's talking, tell them it's so loud that I can hear it here and everybody's being distracted. Sorry, that's dad telling the kids to be quiet or whatever, but it's annoying. Um, So the Nicene Creed um, doesn't have this this statement of the Apostles' Creed of descended into hell. And if you'll notice, most of the time in our church, we'll use the Nicene Creed, not the Apostles' Creed, because I don't think the idea of he descended into hell is really what happened. And so what the Westminster Confession of Faith says is when it refers to this descending into hell, it refers to it as basically the place of the dead, that he died and was buried. And, re, and so, or it'll say he suffered, you know, as Calvin believes that, that Christ suffered the pains of hell at the cross, 
And that's what, you know, so some will try to get around that and say that's what we mean by descended into hell, but I don't think that's what the Apostles' Creed meant, but it was something that was added centuries later. I don't think there's scriptural proof for it, and I certainly don't think that's what 1 Peter 3 is teaching, okay? So then there's a connection that Peter and Jude both interact with the book of Enoch, and the book of Enoch is an apocryphal book, and Enoch, if you remember Enoch, He's from the seventh generation down from Adam. The Bible says about Enoch that Enoch walked with God and he was not. And as the Septuagint just says, he was not found. They looked for him. They couldn't find him. You know, so Enoch walked with God. He was not, for God took him. Well, apparently Enoch developed into a prominent figure in ancient Jewish tradition. There's an apocryphal book called First Enoch, And it dates back to this apocryphal period between the time of the end of the Old Testament canon to the New Testament. So it's around 300 B.C. Um, And so you have this very popular book of 1st Enoch. And actually Jude quotes Enoch um, directly. Now, the book of Enoch is never recognized. There's only one little pocket of tradition. It's like in Ethiopia where these Christians recognize First Enoch, but you can read it online. It's very fanciful, and it's, it's written as though Enoch himself is, is telling all this thing, but Enoch is quite fancifully describing the fallen angels of Genesis 6, 1 to 4, that abandoned heaven, slept with women, produced children, and then the children are referred to as the Nephilim, the giants, and <clears throat> And because of that, that's what led to the flood. So first Enoch is going to go into a lot of that. Well, the book of first Enoch goes on to teach that these evil spirits are going to continue to corrupt the earth until the great day, until the Lord returns and the great age is consummated and everything is concluded. So Enoch is proclaiming um, that you'll not be able to, ins- to, to, the, to the spirit world that you're never going to be able to ascend into heaven until all eternity. You shall re- remain inside the earth, imprisoned all the days of eternity. So you put that little puzzle piece in, and, and some are debated. It's debated whether Peter's audience was familiar with First Enoch, but certainly Peter was familiar with it. And then you you consider Genesis and what Genesis tells us. Let's just be reminded of these these texts because you kind of put the puzzle pieces together. So you got Genesis six. And then you have two references in the New Testament, 2 Peter 2 and Jude, and I'll quote them for you. But here they are. Noah was 500 years old. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So this is the time of Noah. When men began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And so the sons of God... Basically, the interpretation that I'm giving you is contingent upon that the sons of God is actually angels in Genesis 6-2. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, his days shall be a hundred years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, the giants. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, 
man, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Then we have two references that refer to this in the New Testament. And here they are. 2 Peter 2, 4, and 5, and I think we've got that as a slide that we can pull up. Uh, 2 Peter 2, 4, and 5 says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Now this word here, the word hell is, is technically not in the Greek. It's the word tartaroo. And it's the verb form of this location of this word of Tartarus. And Tartarus is a word that's used in Greek tradition referring to the place where these uh, rebellious angels dwelt. Okay, so it's called Tartarus. It's, it's a, it would be our, Greek, our, our Jewish equivalent of, of Gehenna. And so he cast them into, into hell, these, these angels who sinned, and he committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon a world of the ungodly. So we kind of have a hint that the rebellion that takes place in Genesis 6 was angels, okay? And then you have the same thing in Jude 6, and it says the angels who did not stay with their own position, within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so you're putting this together, you're connecting Genesis 6, 2 Peter 2, 4, Jude 6, and then you go back to 1 Peter 3, and this is what you get. As Karen Jobes in her commentary puts it like this, the spirits to whom Christ preached would be understood as fallen angels or demonic spirits. Their imprisonment represents in spatial terms God's restraining power over them. The message Christ proclaimed to them is the confirmation that the day of the great conclusion first announced by the flood is now upon them. Christ's ascension itself may have been the proclamation of their defeat as Jesus Christ is the victor over all evil in both the spirit and human world forever. And so I think what you have here in 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20 is the resurrected Christ as he's before, or during the ascent to heaven, he's passing through the spirit world and he's proclaiming to the imprisoned spirits his victory over death. The exalted Christ is going where these fallen angels are kept, and he is proclaiming his triumph over them. Now, we don't really have the details of what that looked like, but I've heard one message that was quite fanciful about this, and it was kind of the idea of Daniel 5. And if you remember in Daniel 5, you have Belshazzar. Uh, he is just feasting away with the, te- with the idols, or with the... Uh, stuff from the temple, the, the very goblets and the, the very precious ornaments from the temple, and he's getting drunk, and they're having this great party. And if you remember Daniel 5, there's a hand that appears on the wall as they're partying away, and it says, Mene, Mene, Tekelu, Parson. You know, you, you've been found, and you've been weighed in the scales and found wanting, and they're all trembling because they see this hand. Well, and you can imagine how just incredibly scary that would have been as you're partying away and you figure that the demons must have been having this great party that we've crucified 
Jesus. We're, we've, we're done with Jesus. We finally have won the victory, and they're all celebrating in hell. And then Jesus shows up. <laughs> uh, party's over at that point. Jesus has come to declare that he's risen from the dead, and he's ascending to heaven. And I know when I was a kid, and maybe some of you children can relate to this, but if I was in big trouble, like really big trouble as a child, you would hear this line, when dad gets home, you're in big trouble. When dad gets home, you're going to get it. You know, and that's what my mom used to threaten me, or even sometimes my siblings would say, well, when dad gets home and hears about this, you're in big trouble. Well, isn't that what's happening here? Is Jesus is ascending into heaven. He's going through the spirit world and he's letting him know, I'm heading home. And your judgment's imminent. It's a declaration of victory. And we have the end of the story of what, you know, as you, the beautiful thing about scripture is like, we are told about things from times past. We are told about things that are times in the future. We're told about our present. And we're also told about things that we can't see. And I don't know about you, but when, stuff, when I read stuff like this, it's, it's sobering. Because the Bible says we're to be babes in the things of evil or ignorant. Like, we're not to know about the spirit world. Like, you, you know, I, I mean, I even just knew as a kid, like, Ouija board? Like, man, get near that. No, I don't do that stuff. Anything where you're messing around with the spirit world, like conjuring up demons or something? Like, no thanks. You want to have some seance or something? I want to be as far, I don't even read Harry, I don't even watch Harry Potter movies, okay, Harry Potter, never seen them, I mean, I'm scared of Harry Potter, okay, I just don't mess with that stuff, like, are you kidding, like, this is the spirit world, why are you digging into that, and I've heard Harry Potter's not so bad, but, but, you know, I, I'm just like, I don't like that stuff, we have to say to ourselves, like, if the judgment is coming on them for one sin that they did, are we any better? I mean, we are promised a victory and a declaration of victory, and these people are going to be punished. And here's the end of the story. We're told in Revelation 20 that when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. He'll come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sands of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. There's no place to hide. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. So if you thought maybe if you were down at the bottom of the sea, you might be okay. You're not okay. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged. Everybody's judged. Each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
Thrown into the lake of fire where the devil is thrown and the beast and the false prophet already are. That's, where, that's, scary, that's all scary stuff. And so Peter is saying in 1 Peter 3, how can you be saved from that? How can you be saved from that? And he refers back to Noah, Noah's day, and Noah's pointing about there's this big judgment coming and how only eight people escaped and they escaped in this boat and this boat saved them. And he's saying, you need to be baptized. That's what'll save you. And then you look at verse, this verse and it seems like, oh, well, must, if I just had some water go on me, I, baptism now corresponds to this. Verse 21 now saves you. I remember years ago, a guy just stopped by the church one day and he had a, a guilty conscience and he just wanted to be baptized. And he asked me if I would baptize him. You know, we just put some water on me. And we get talking and I, and I was trying to tell him, look, you, you, I, I can't baptize you. you, you when you're baptized, you're baptized into the body. Do you want to join the church? Like what you need is what baptism symbolizes. It's a sign and seal of the real thing. But we don't have the Holy Spirit on tap. I can't just dispense the Holy Spirit, give you a little water, throw it on you, and you're good. You turn around in your car and zoom off because you've now been baptized and you're good to go. You've gotten a little water on you. And Peter says here, the baptism that saves you is not a removal of dirt from the body. Not water baptism. No water going to do it. That's not what's going to save you. You need the real thing. Because we all have this issue about the conscience. You start looking through the references of conscience in the Bible. And you read things about a seared conscience. An evil conscience. And how to be, you know, even what love looks like. Talking about a, a good conscience. And this idea of we, how do we get this good conscience? And even refers to the good conscience in verse 16. But here it is again. And the, the good conscience is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here we have it again. It's a, this is what's going to save you. It's the real thing. And so the idea is this. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses in our place, Romans 4.25, and he was raised for our justification, our being made right with God. And so Paul makes this argument in Romans 4. He's saying, just as Abraham believed God's promise and it was counted to him as righteousness or imputed to him. Then he says, the words, it was counted to him, it was imputed to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours. It'll be counted to us who believe in him, who raised, the, the dead, raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. It's the same for you as it was for Abraham. If you believe the promise, just as Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness, that through you, through your offspring, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. It's for you. If you believe that, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And now we're told that Jesus has gone into heaven, verse 22. And he's gone into heaven, and what is he doing? He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Is that what you believe about Jesus this morning? 
Because it doesn't say that Jesus is now a great teacher. He was a good prophet. He's the greatest human being who was ever born. He's my life coach. He's my example. He's my inspiration. Do you see any of those things in verse 22? I mean, because none of those other things are going to save you. Being a great teacher, prophet, greatest human being, life coach. I mean, that's no different than the Dalai Lama or Confucius, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, or Muhammad. No different. But Jesus is unparalleled. You can't compare him. He's been raised from the dead. He's ascended and gone to heaven. He's at the right hand of God. And he has angels, authorities, and powers subjected to them because he's over them. And so when you think about Psalm 24 is an ascension psalm and that ultimately Christ fulfills. And, and this is how Psalm 24 goes. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who's going to just go on up into the presence of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Answer, well, he who has clean hands, a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to what is false, nor does he swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Who's done that? Anybody? Jesus. He's the only one. He's done it. So then it says, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And then we see, lift up your, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who's the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. <clears throat> Who's this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He's the king of glory. You see, the idea is that Jesus has gone up to those ancient doors and says, open up. The king of glory has come. And guess who he brings with him? All that are his. He said, I'll lose none. And he brings them right up with him into heaven. And what is he doing now? He intercedes for his children. He rules and he reigns. And he's over all these principalities. And so we get a little foretaste of being at his table this morning. As we come in and we experience the table, we experience his, his presence, his goodness, we taste and see that the Lord is good, but we're reminded that we're in him and he's in heaven. The Bible says we're already seated with him in heavenly places. Guess who's also ruling over angels and principalities and who's going to judge angels someday? You are his children of God. That's what the scripture says, that we will reign with him. You say, unbelievable, it's amazing, and it's true. Let's pray. Lord, may this future hope bring strength, consolation, peace, and joy now for us, Lord, as we wait. Give us strength. Meet us at your table. Forgive us of our unbelief. And may we fear you and trust you. Lord, we thank you for this word of reminder of the victory that Christ has won. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.